All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of the New World Signals podcast. We are back here on my Orange County estate with the beautiful Blue Ridge Vistas in the background. Uh, my fields of cotton are currently being planted. It is very beautiful to see uh, the forests and the hills all flowering and green because spring is sprung and summer is very much on the way, and it is one of my favorite times of year in the Old Dominion, in the state of my home in Virginia. And I am joined by another wonderful guest. Uh, he is an expert, more than an expert, on foreign policy. He is my shadow secretary of state. He has been a guest on numerous shows and podcasts across the sphere, including the academic agent more times than I can count, including the Pete Quinones show, including Oran McIntyre's channel, and many, many, many more. And more than all of that, he is a personal friend of mine, a wonderful acquaintance that uh, that flowered into a full-on friendship from the U.S. event. And I am absolutely overjoyed to welcome my friend and comrade, Prudentialist, onto the New World Signals podcast. How are you doing, Prude? I'm doing fantastic, Paul. How are you? I am outstanding as always. I have my bowl of mint juleps next to me and we are we are having a wonderful time here looking out over the Blue Ridge. And what's interesting, Prude, is that I'm uh, both of us and I didn't know this until we were in the sort of in the group chat for the speakers for the US event, but I didn't know that you were as big of a fan of Rush as I was. I'm sure uh, I'm sure you 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 came about to it through similar similar backgrounds, but my father Growing up, uh, Rush was the band. It was the CD. There was like, I think it was the Rush Greatest Hits CD that everyone bought. I think you know which one I'm talking about, um, that my father would play in the car. And that was like the first time I ever actually listened to, to music that wasn't just, you know, background noise from a radio. And when I was in, when I was in my freshman year of high school, I started, I kind of rediscovered Rush and I started listening to them again, like in a serious context with a conscious brain. And I fell in love with the, with the lyrics, you know, as, as a lot of high functioning nerdy types do, uh, as a, as a good mutual friend of ours says, uh, Rush is the mutual or the mutual Rush is the grateful dead for nerds. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that very much rings true. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, how did you get into Rush? How did you get into this band? You know, was it similar I, to me? Was it like listening to what your dad played, or or was it something more accidental? Or what 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 brought you to it? Definitely more accidental. Like uh, growing up, it was definitely more of uh, the Beach Boys or Jan and Dean getting played in the car while it was uh, happening with my dad driving. But no, I discovered it like in in middle school. I want to say sixth or seventh grade when I started really beginning to appreciate music, like all moody teenagers do. But you get the first generation iPod or so, and uh, it comes with a, a list of just random assorted music from ACDC to like Roy Orbson. But the first song that was on there that was from Rush that just made me fall in love with the band was Spirit of Radio. 
And I listened to it once and I just listened to it on repeat over and over again. So before I even put any more music on there, that song had at least 50 plays or so. And um, come high school and college, I've just grown to love the band. I have their entire discography on CD in my car and I drive like an old 2006 Ford Taurus. And I think that one of the Rush CDs, which is um, the album Signals, is stuck in the CD drive. So it all kind of works out in case I'm ever on the road. Well, there are a lot worse albums to be stuck in the in the CD drive than Signal or was it Signals or Moving Pictures that was stuck Signals in Signals. So Signals is uh, you know tied with Moving Pictures is probably their uh, their best two I'd say contending for their for their best two albums. I know I'm sure there will be people who disagree. There will be Rush fans who disagree, and there will be other people like you know what the hell is Rush? Why are, what what are these people talking about? Well, um, uh, actually, I think that's a great question to kind of address. You know. The band Rush, they're a Canadian rock band formed in about the uh, mid-1970s, early 1970s, um, initially by Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and a drummer whose name forgets me. Uh, John Rutsey. John Rutsey? Okay, yeah. And so he was the drummer. If you listen to Rush's first album, actually the self-titled album Rush, uh, that is the drummer you will hear on it. And it's a very different sound than you will hear on pretty much the rest of Rush's discography. Uh, he was a lot more simplistic kind of a drummer than their um, than their later drummer, uh, Neil Peart. Rest in peace, Neil Peart, um, who is, uh, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion, literally the greatest drummer of all time. You know, I don't think that's an exaggeration. If you, you know, even if you type in like the watch mojo, freaking, uh, freaking best drummer list of all time, uh, you will, you will see Neil Peart in top tens, if not number one. Um, and, you know, it's because, you know, Neil Peart was just an outstanding drummer. On top of that, he became Rush's lyricist. Uh, Neil Peart, he's actually kind of a man who, you know, many in the dissident right would have probably been able to have lots of conversations with because oftentimes he gets typecasted into being this sort of, uh, into being this sort of Randian libertarian, as does the entire band of Rush get typecasted into being this this Randy and Libertarian band uh, because of, uh, you know, most particularly the song 2112, which is almost a complete retelling of uh, Anthem, which I think is a short story by Ayn Rand. Um, but really, Neil Peart was this, this genuine literary kind of man. Not only did he read Ayn Rand, which was kind of in vogue at the time that Rush was playing, but he also read Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I think he read Keats. I think he read all of the great English poets and lyricists. And, you know, several several of Rush's songs are based on heavy literary themes, not just, not just you know, Ayn Rand books or short stories or something like that. Like, you know, how many other, how many other rock bands in the 70s and the 80s were, were putting out stuff like that with, um, uh, with these sort of deep, you know, almost artifacts of Western culture, Western civilization. You know, I, what I like about Rush and its discography, especially is because you get that, uh, you know, early to mid seventies sort of rock opera ballads. I mean, it, it sort of stops after hemispheres, but I, you know, between Farewell to Kings and, and 2112 and, and Fly by Night, these three albums, you get some amazing, rhapsodical songs that I think are really of the time and the era that just defines the the sound of the band very early on besides you know their initial album Rush but 
you can't tell me right that like 2112 and this fantastical science fiction story that's being told with you know the use of the synth how his voice works along it just telling these tales you, i can't find that in a lot of other bands of the time and i don't think i've found anything close to it um since so i i, I would agree with you there wholeheartedly oh 100 same thing with uh cygnus x1 into hemispheres like that was a that's, I think, in total, the two songs are about 28 minutes. Um, if you listen to Cygnus X1 and then you listen to uh, Cygnus X1 Part 2, Hemispheres. And yeah, you're right. Rush, Rush was one of these bands making, you know, longer songs than average, you know, longer than radio length. Um, you know, they were making these large epic tales of, of space exploration and flying ships into black holes and then traveling back in time to conflicts between Greek gods and all of this other stuff. And it's, you know, they're very, you know, that they, they got, a, I don't want to say they got a, got away with it, but they made it work. They made it work. They made it sound genuine. They made it sound good. And, you know, this was at a time when other bands like, you know, I guess Led Zeppelin and, and the who and, and, you know, even even other quote unquote progressive rock, prog rock bands like Pink Floyd were kind of like, I don't want to say taking the easy way out, but we're 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 doing more mainstream popular things that would would resonate with a wide audience that was listening onto radio networks. And you know, this is you know, I understand that this kind of line of rhetoric is a common thing that lots of Rush fans will employ, but it, it it's true. You know, Rush Rush is for nerds, but it's for the type of people who understand what Western culture is and more than Western culture, what, you know, Americana is right. And this, this brings me to sort of what the general Americana of rush. Now I'm the first one to kind of admit rush is a Canadian band, right? Rush is a Canadian band. They were three of all three of them were Canadians. Um, although you could, you could mention the, uh, ethnic origins of uh of one of them but <laughs> we won't get into that but um all three of them were more or less born and raised in canada more or less of canada's culture and so you know looking at the united states looking at what the american culture is they were always kind of outsiders looking in and you know i in many ways actually i think that's kind of helpful because they made so many songs about America, about Americana. <clears throat> and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it, it is helpful having the fact that there are neighbors up, up, you know, our neighbors upstairs, our neighbors next door in the great white North. I think in many ways, Americana and what America is can only really be understood. Well, obviously it can be understood by Americans inside of it, but there are certain aspects of it that can only really be viewed or understood by people on the outside. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. I don't know if, 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 if that's something if that's something you agree with, or if that's something I'm kind of just pulling out of my ass here. No, I agree. Actually, it's that, you know, we as people who are Americans, we have what, you know, that sort of privilege of empire thing. It's why you see in a lot of classrooms or that you used to, I don't know what public school is like now. I imagine even worse than it was for you and I, but you know, they, they have like the picture of the globe and then it shows like the continental U.S., Alaska and Hawaii. And it's like there's more to the world than just this, because we have to remind ourselves that, you know, it, it would be like a citizen of Rome, just like thinking about Gaul or, uh, you know, North Africa and Carthage. 
you know, you can think about them in your own way and they'll think about you in a vastly different way. Um, and, and that's kind of where you're at is, is that we have this unique privilege of empire. And I think to get even a modicum of a, of a, of an appraisal from us, you have to go outside and you have to ask your neighbors. And it's even more important now because like Russia as a band is coming up one under the midst of the cold war between the USSR and the United States. But they're also right next door to some, like most of the population of Canada is right next to us on the Great Lakes where they have access to, to Michigan, Ohio, and most importantly, New York and New York City is where you'll see a lot of them f- frequent between. And it kind of just says a lot that here's a, a people that does have its own fundamental culture and its own fundamental upbringing is a colonial nation that now, you know, is its own country. But I mean, they're right next to the largest cultural export of the West. So who better than to give us uh, an appraisal and their own view looking into the window of what is sort of the Americana, the American culture. Completely agree with you. Um, and yeah, no, th- th- that's completely true. It's like, um, um, you could almost say that these people, even though they're not living in the United States, they're kind of living in uh, an extension of the hinterlands of the what we call the global American empire. And by virtue of living in the hinterlands of this empire, even though de jure, they're living in this uh, independent sovereign country. Um, but like de facto, they very much are kind of at the beck and call of Washington and the, um, uh, and the uh, current ruling regime of the United States, whatever whatever you say that is, but, you know, I particularly there, there's a couple more than a couple, but there's a, there's quite a few songs Rush has released over a a series of their different albums that, you know, all revolve around a certain aspect of what we would call Americana or what the American consciousness is, you know, Rush. Yeah. Rush was a Canadian band, but the super majority of their supporters were in the United States and the United States is where they toured the most because that's where they sold out the most shows, where they went, where they got the most success, the most album sales. And where really they experienced, you know, a lot of their, um, uh, a lot of their songwriting potential. I mean, you know, not counting Neil Parrott's weird tour around the world. And Neil Parrott had a lot of personal tragedy in his life. Um, I believe in, you know, immediately after the uh, test for echo album if i'm not mistaken um his wife and his daughter died within six months of each other and so he kind of took a very extended hiatus from the band going on a motorcycle trip through africa and other places to kind of you know resolve that um but i mean other than that i mean in the 70s and the 80s rush was mostly witnessing and writing about things in in you know the united states and what we would call the wider new world and you know there's a whole bunch of songs that they've released that are about these sort of these different aspects of americana and what the american consciousness is and what the american spirit is and you know what i wanted to do with you if if it's all right with you i wanted to go through each of these uh, you know we've got a list here we got a list we put together of all of these songs uh, pulled from different albums from their earliest album. I think we pulled from is the, uh, the permanent waves album. I think that was 19, 1980, 1980. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we, we pulled from permanent waves in 1980 all the way out to a uh, uh, power windows in 1985. So this is kind of like the golden era of rush rush releases about eight albums in a row, um, which are just great which are just outstanding, um, you know, 
starting with 2112 and ending with power windows they they really have a good run of about 10 years and you know they still they still make good songs every now and again after that period um and they have made good stuff before that period it's just really that is like the key of rush you know and and I don't think I'm. Uh, I don't think it's mistaken that during this time they released most of their songs about Americana, and sort of the New World uh, consciousness. And um, the first song of this whole list I wanted to get into was "Spirit," the Spirit of Radio. This is off of their new permanent Permanent Waves album. This is the most notable song off that album, but it's in many ways it's probably one of their top three songs. If I had to pick Rush's top three songs that most everyone has heard, I would have to say Tom Sawyer, Spirit of Radio, and Subdivisions. Those are the three, and all those are all three songs we will cover on this list, but those are the three uh, most popular, most listened to songs, uh, you know, that Rush has ever released. And they're all, all three of them are really good songs, really, you know, iconic instrumentals in all three, uh, synth and drum solos. But what I wanted to get into was the uh, was the lyrics of all of these, right? And we're not going to go through we're not going to go through each song lyric to lyric. But what we are going to do is we're gonna we're gonna hit on sort of the general theme of each of these songs. And the theme of Spirit of Radio is well, it's you know kind of self explanatory. It is literally about what the spirit of listening to radio was. You know, I had a so for the audience who isn't familiar once. Uh, couple of years ago, I was working in a, uh, I was working in retail for lack of a better word. And I had a supervisor who was kind of this Gen X mid forties type. He was a good guy. I, I remember him. I like him. And he was one of the biggest rush fans I had met in my life. And he was in charge of playing the music in our little section of the store. So he would always have rush on. And every time, every time uh, the spirit of radio came on, he would always, you know, stop and kind of point to me when, uh, Getty Lee sang out the line, one likes to believe in the freedom of music, but glittering prizes and endless compromises shatter the illusion of integrity. And he would always say to me, as soon as they read out that, uh, those couple of lines, he would always say that's the best line written in any song ever. You know, on the surface of it, I think it refers to the fact that Rush, when they released um, when they released Caress of Steel, which was one of these really high-minded kind of, you know, 70s storytelling albums, um, you know, Neil Peart really liked it. When they released that, it was not at all commercially successful. Fly By Night was their album before that. That was pretty successful. That's what put them on the map. But when they released Caress of Steel, it was not very successful at all they were got they were at the point of um uh, instead of playing in arenas they were playing in like clubs and their record label essentially told the band like you look you've got one more chance and so neil pear getty lee and alex lifeson all got together and they were kind of like well you know we got two options that we can go with this it was option a it was either go the route of led zeppelin and or and other you know bands of the of the era and start making mass appeal songs that people could jam out to on the radio, not think too deeply about, or they could stay true to themselves and release what, you know, them as a band kind of wanted to release. And they decided to go with the latter option. They decided to stay true to themselves and release a album based around this long, you know, epic story 
of Space Exploration 2112. And that's one of their most notable albums to this day. And this is one of the instances that I feel like a band staying true to itself, um, you know, paid off. It, 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 you know, Rush was never as successful. It will never have the name recognition. It will never be as high selling as something like, you know, something like Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or the Grateful Dead or anything else like this. But they, they know what they are and they always did. And they never stopped being what they were. Well, yeah, and I think that the previous lyrics before that kind of indicate where you're where you're going with this and your and your line of thinking. You know, all this machinery making modern music can still be open hearted, not so coldly charted. It's just really a question of your honesty. Uh, and I think uh, Parrot really highlights that perfectly the, of sticking to your guns here, because, you know, after Caress of Steel, where you get this, you know, fantastical sort of, you know, the, the 70s high concept stuff where you get the the necromancer and the fountain of lamnith uh which like together is almost like f i think it's over 40 minutes or at least almost 40 minutes of music to listen to and you know we we continue on with with 2112 but yeah i'm right there with you that spirit of radio is probably one of their top three most recognized i might swap out one of those songs for working man um but yeah definitely the most recognizable and this was the song that actually got me uh, in, into Rush, I was telling you before we decided to go on air was that uh, unlike you sort of, you know, growing up with it and, and, and enjoying it and having those experiences, I got it by pure happenstance that it was one of those just songs that gets packed in when you buy like your first iPod. So mm. it's up there with like an ACDC song or Roy Orbson song, but Spirit of Radio is the first one. And I like distinctly remember in like sixth grade listening to that on repeat over and over and over again with not i didn't even put other music on it yet of things that i had listened to or grew up with and enjoyed but that song just hit me of how well it was made how it opened just in the iconic fashion that it does and i was just like yeah this is this is a band for me and is become middle school high school college i you just grow and fall in love with the band. And I think it also just says a lot at the very beginning. It's something that we also do today, right? You know, the, the song begins with beginning the day with a, a friendly voice, a companion, unobtrusive. Um, whether it's the song that makes your morning great or even listening to the news and radio and weather about traffic, uh, I, that sort of trend, I think, has gone not only just with the radio, but even today with Gen Z and younger millennials. You have your... Everyone posts on Twitter or in the group chat. Good morning. Everyone posts. <laughs> uh, everyone comes in with that parasocial relationship, getting really excited that, oh, I'm so glad I could catch this live. Uh, I think that you're just seeing that um, just with a much older essence, uh, whether you're hitting the open road, right? The the magic is at your fingertips. The same thing for us. It's, not, it's on our phones. We listen to it now. Uh, that spirit just changed mediums. Oh, yeah, very much. And, you know, yeah, and and it's it's as kind of a I don't want to say I'm not so recent anymore, but as a kind of a more recent comer to these fears, I can very much sort of attest to that feeling. When you hear content creators, whether they're YouTubers like yourself or uh, people like Bronze Age Pervert making podcasts, and or my mentor Thomas making podcasts, it's like you know you listen to these people. And you start to look at them the way that these older Americans and previous generations looked at their sort of their sort of heroes. 
the difference between us and them is that it's not so they had a kind of a culture that these heroes were a part of and we because we live in the ashes of civilization and uh, what used to be culture has been shattered into a thousand different pieces. This is kind of just limited to whatever these spheres are. But that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean the place has been changed. There's still a niche that can fill that place. And I very much agree with you. You know, I almost, you know, I almost started to project kind of personal relationships, um, you know, even without meeting a lot of these people with people I would just send super chats to people whose comment sections I'd be in all the time, you know, and this is, this is, you know, I'm sure a lot of, you know, a lot of the listeners that are listening right now can kind of relate to this feeling. It's like, as you said, this very much is a, a parasocial relationship. And part of me thinks that, you know, the importance of this song, the spirit of radio is, is the fact that radio is, radio is one of those things where it's kind of like the American medium. It is, it is, it is the direct precursor to things like television, the direct precursor to things like movies. Um, you know, it's still out there today. You know, it's, it's, it's one of these kind of, it's one of these things that, you know, the Americans came up with in order to fill the void of emptiness in their souls with endless noise. And I think, I think, uh, I think that, you know, Rush kind of hits on this with with the uh with the song with the spirit of radios because it's like you know radio is intertwined with the american spirit you know it, it, it these endless waves reaching across the plains and the, and the mountains and the oceans and all of that is is very very much i think part of the american spirit you got anything else to say on on the song before we move on uh, just a couple of things. One, I, I do think that there's something uniquely American about it, about magic at your fingers being in the car. Because, I mean, if you're public transportation or on a train or whatever, that isn't really an option to you. But in a car-oriented society like we are in the U.S., just, I mean, the, the world is literally at your fingertips for finding radio or tuning into the weather. That's something that is just because we're car-based. That's something there. But you're right, though, about that the radio is something that really did become American in the essence, whether it's ham radio. But I mean, radio dramas and radio plays, I mean, before television and before the movie theater getting big with talkies. I mean, one of the biggest things about radio that is somewhat of this like long forgotten cultural artifact is the shadow. Like really the first original superhero who can do things to sort of this Randian idea of ethics and morals and he's kind of lost because, I mean, Batman kind of becomes sort of the the successor to it. But I mean, if you want someone to, I know Razor Fist is a huge Shadow fan and has talked about it at length. But I mean, radio is because of how that character exists in the way that we know it. And I think this song just sort of captures the the history and more especially as music makers, these guys as artists uh, really hit it on the head about the desire for staying true to themselves because it really is quickly to fall to salesmen and charts and playing the game. Well, 100%. And that's an, unfortunately that's one of the darker aspects of the American spirit is always, you know, looking for your 40 acres and a mule, I guess is looking for your, you know, kind of getting yours. And that can, that can be seen in, you know, even in our movement with like the grifters and all of that. Um, but yeah, as a matter of fact, I think this is, um, it's a good way to transition is actually the second song on our list, uh, Tom Sawyer. So Tom Sawyer is, I think, the single most famous song Rush has ever written, um, Rush has ever played. Uh, damn near everyone, even if you haven't heard of Rush, you've probably heard Tom Sawyer. You've I, you've heard like the opening guitar uh, 
uh, the action no, the opening, uh, the synth, uh, with the guitar and, um, uh, you might've, you might remember the, um, uh, riff playing as, um, uh, playing as Getty Lee sings out the chorus, but, uh, this song is kind of, it's written about, you know, the, the very famous, um, Mark Twain book, uh, Tom Sawyer, uh, about, but it's not about like him. It's got, it uses a lot of poetic language evoking the aesthetics of that book. But it's not really, you know, it's not really about the character. It's kind of using the character to compare to like some, um, to compare to some, what Rush would call, this is this is kind of when you start to see the Ayn Randian influence, the libertarian. Um, the individualistic yeah, nature. individualist, objectivist influence on Rush, uh, particularly vis-a-vis Neil Peart, uh, come into it when they're talking about, um, you know, we'll, we'll just listen to the first verse, you know, you know, though his mind is not for rent, don't put him down as arrogant, his reserve a quiet defense writing out the day's events. So, um, uh, you know, this, the, the, his mind is not for rent. This is kind of rush, you know, thumbing the nose at ideologies or religions or something like that. And this was very much common of the zeitgeist. You know, we kind of look at this and we see it as like, you know, cringe individualism or like, uh, or, or globo Homer or something like that, you know, uh, atomization and all that, but this was very much an aspect of the zeitgeist, you know, in many ways, you know, as my mentor Thomas would say, it's kind of a reaction to the cold war where, you know, everyone kind of had to paint themselves on one way or another. Right. Um, but you know, <laughs> to quote the lyrics of another rush song, we didn't put on this list of uh, free will, uh, even those, uh, what is it? even if you don't decide you still have made a choice or something like that. So it's like, you know, one of the things I think Neil Parrott didn't realize is that by trying to, by trying to put yourself in this camp of like rebels of like libertarian objectivists of idealists who only really care about, you know, the individual and his, you know, and his uh, destiny or future, they don't realize that like, that doesn't take you out. That doesn't remove you from these larger epical forces in motion um, in the aspect of the Cold War, right? Uh, you know, they later say, you know, Noah's mind is not for rent to any god or government. You know, always hopeful yet discontent. He knows changes aren't permanent. And, you know, this is this is very much just kind of the epitome of, you know, what many of us probably were a couple of years ago in the early 2010s right around gamergate when the skeptic sphere was big i don't know about you prude i mean that's you know there's several pipelines to where we are now uh the pipeline that i kind of went down was the uh skeptic sargon to uh aa to uh bronze age pervert pipeline um but i know there are others i know there are people who had libertarian backgrounds and you know got into <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> was, was that your background? Uh, yeah, I, I told it on P. Keonis' show that if you were to like meet me in high school and college, it was far more of what Murray Rothbard would describe as like a modal libertarian. I was more focused on just like win, win, win. I was far more uh, like the, the Ron Paul revolution type guy, Lulbert, so to speak. I, I have no problem admitting that, but you know, you, the, the, but 20, you know, 2014, 2013 comes around and like Gamergate happens and you start listening to people that have like these similar, what we would consider milk toast objections back then to who we are now. But you know, you, you listen to Sargon and then you find your way um and through sargon i actually ended up discovering like you mentioned like aa but after aa my youtube recommendation algorithm started actually working in my favor for once 
And uh, I found the distributist, I found Charlemagne, and I found sort of the more traditionalist reactionary route. But uh, by creating a channel and finally saying, screw it, I'll give my opinions after years of being asked in polite liberal company for the contrarian take uh, to go ahead and put my stuff out there. And that's how I've managed to meet everybody. I know about the BAP sphere, the all frog Twitter, everything. But yeah, I think that you're right. Is is that if you, the whole, we know that changes aren't permanent, but change is like, we know whatever happens here right now in these spaces or whatever the take is, or whoever the big, big name is that we'll listen to uh, like Curtis Yarvin, for example, like you can listen to him, but I don't think his like name you know, like God or government, I don't think he holds like the end all be all take for a lot of people anymore. I think that a lot of people have moved on from him. They've gotten what they can from him. And again, changes aren't permanent, but change is. So we we have to move along with the zeitgeist of the time. But we also need to on the right. It's always a particularly interesting thing because we know that change is permanent. You know, change is change is permanent because things will constantly change. Uh, and Rush hits that in numerous other songs, like New World Man, which I think we'll talk about later, where we know constant change is here to stay. But we, as you know, on the right, the sort of intellectual or cultural vanguard of what has come before, I, I think that we hold a a degree of understanding that change is permanent. But through that change, we also recognize to preserve. A, what, you know, should be preserved, but B, we also preserve what is lost um, and usually preserved what is lost by people that have an adamant goal to destroy it for no other reason than it is good, just and beautiful. Yeah, 100%. I'm very much with you on that. And, you know, there's another there's another lyric in this. Uh, what you say about his company is what you say about society. And I think that that kind of those those lines right there is very much indicative of you know, where we kind of find ourselves, you know, not just in this sphere, but in generally within the entire realm of politics. I mean, you know, what you say about the friends that you have, what you say about the associates that one of these figures like Moldbug, like, uh, you know, like Thomas, uh, you know, even like mainstream people like Madison Cawthorn, like what you have to say about uh, the company these people keep, you know, or, or the people who in whose company these people are that's what you have to say about the world as a whole. And, you know, I mean, Tom Sawyer, I, I really think it'll be remembered more for the amazing instrumentals more than the lyrics, but, you know, I do think that these lyrics, um, and also it's just, it's, it's, it's a piece of Americana and the fact that it's like, it's talking about this kind of person that existed in the cold war that didn't really want to, you know, didn't really want to be, working for the man in the form of the federal government also didn't really want to go over to the reds either. Um, and it's just kind of this, this indicator of what um, is just a choice that a lot of people made during the cold war. And, you know, it's caked in these Mark Twain terms. And I know a lot of people in the writer, like, you know, Mark Twain is Quinn is quit is cringe, but, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I think I, I, I think a lot of people should always remember one of the best sort of smart remarks Mark Twain has ever made that um, God invented war so Americans could learn geography. But yeah, I think that, <laughs> I think I think that you're right because it's just like um, the Tom Sawyer character to me represents a lot of like the old right libertarians, even the what was the anti-war left. I think that that's been hollowed out to like two or three people, but. I mean, even today, right, in the modern context, what you say about his company is what you say about society. Like, normal, sane, hardworking people 
whether they're politicians or media figures like Tucker Carlson, who just got hit by a huge hit piece today by the New York Times, or even that Vanity Fair article about Peter Thiel and like dark MAGA and the and the new right or whatever, it does say about our society that it's just like, oh, people that want to preserve and question the system that has led to more or less their destruction writ large. Um yeah, they're the bad guys. But even though, as uh, Frody said with Radical Liberation not too long ago, no, you're not. You are a normal person. And all of your positions would have been considered normal 60 years ago or even 30 years ago. You should not feel bad about any belief that you hold in the present day. This is completely true. Completely true. Um, and I think this is actually, it's a good way to sort of speaking of um, uh, the shifts from the present day uh away from a better vanished time let's uh let's move on to the next song on our list uh, red barchetta uh, red barchetta is kind of different from the songs we've covered already because it's more of just like it's it's like a self-contained sort of epic story song i wouldn't say i wouldn't say epic in the sense like that cygnus x1 or 2112 would be considered epic but it's 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 based off of uh the short story a sunday drive that neil parrott read um, I forget who wrote A Sunday Drive, but it's about this sort of world in which all petrol cars have been banned. Um, and it's just about this guy who goes out to his uncle's farm and his uncle still has like a sports car that he keeps in good condition. And he just goes out and he drives a sports car. And, you know, I'm not going to read out, you know, any of the, I'm not going to read out the lyrics like I have. But it's just I want to kind of kind of talk about the general spirit of the song. It's like, you know, the song is is quintessentially American. You know, it's quintessentially American, not just because it's about the idea of a motor car. It's not just the, about the idea of, you know, your your vehicle, which brings you from point A to point B, which you can go fast in, which you can do all this energy in and all this other stuff. But it's like it's more of just the fact that, like, you know, even in this world in which, you know, some governmental force or whatever has banned uh, vehicles like this, you still have people who are still going out to their you know, uncle's farms and just driving them around on weekends, you know, just because they they can. Right. And I mean, I, I really do think there's something just quintessentially American about that. You know, the the freedom kind of the, the, the vehicle, the automobile as a microcosm for the freedom of, you know, not just not just being an American, but being in America itself, like just the sheer fact that America has all this wide open space makes it an inherently freer place than a lot of other places in the world. And, you know, the way that you tame that space, the way that you go out and you claim that freedom is by, I think, is, is by mastering, is by uh, using this motor car, is by, um, uh, you know, thumbing the nose at the authorities that say you can't have this freedom. You know, and I mean, I know we just spent the last, you know, the last, in talking about Tom Sawyer, we were kind of trashing on this, uh, libertarian objectivist kind of type of person but at the same time it's like the the spirit of the american is is you know the old anglo-saxon poem the wanderer is just the lone wolf who who goes out and lives his own life and you know red barchetta is in many ways a kind of a recapturing of that spirit just talking about some kid going to his uncle's farm driving around a sports car yeah, and I mean, to me, this is probably one of my all-time favorite Rush songs. This is for sure one that I've referenced more times than I care to count. And I think I had made that comment in that group chat that got our your attention. It's like, oh, a fellow Rush fan. Um, but like even today, and we can get into sort of the modern context about it, but like this is a perfect short story. 
that just tells everything that I need to know. But it, I, I've always found it sort of like innately reactionary because it's just like you can this is about the a family member preserving this ancient piece of technology um, and passing it down, you know, to commit his weekly crime, right? Just this joyride. But I mean, you, you know, here we go. He strips away the old debris that hides a shining car, a brilliant red Barchetta from a better vanished time. Um, and I think that uh, that happens a lot today with our artifacts culturally is also mechanically as well. We, we always will see left and right complaints about like planned obsolescence or even more recently now. And I did a video on this when I first started my channel called no, like closing out the exits that, you know, there are people already posting about repo men using the self-driving features of Tesla's to just have the car literally drive itself out, unlock itself and have the repo guys drive it away. And with the push for electric vehicles, they want more and more kill switches in cars. Now, I think that got passed in the and the American, you know, reinvestment act for, you know, uh, infrastructure, just like you're getting to that red Barchetta moment. And what a better way to be, quote unquote, ungovernable than to have your own car, uh, especially now when there's a big push for transportation or in the wake of current events, which this might age terribly. Right. But. Uh, in the wake of like Russian oil and all all the stuff that we're hurting ourselves with, excuse me, there just the uh, the need to rebel, the need to drive, the need to escape, the need to be free, and to feel the wind in your hair. I mean, is there anything better that you can do? Like, I live out in the country, and one of the things that I love the most, and I've done this on more than one fair share of occasion, is that when it, it gets close to that sundown time, maybe, you know, five o'clock or so during the spring or fall or whatever, or even in the summer when it's like six o'clock driving from work or from wherever I'm at, I will roll my windows down on this tiny FM road and I will have that song cranked up as loud as humanly possible. And I'll just let my hand go through the window. And it's just like, there's no greater joy or exhilaration than going like 60 miles an hour down the road blaring that song and just feeling for a few moments that nothing is uh, going to bother you. 100%. Yeah. And and that's a very fair point is it's like, you know, the current elite really what they want to kind of, you know, this is something I've talked about with, with Thomas before, but they really want to bring about like Oriental conditions upon the West Oriental in the sense of like, you know, entirely despotic, um, you know, live in the pod, eat the bugs is how, you know, your average Chinaman has been living for the past 10,000 years. And they want to bring that about upon, um, uh, upon, you know, not just Western, but, you know, white men, because that is the, the ultimate humiliation that your sort of white Occidental European man could undergo, which is to live without freedom. Um, and within the song, like something similar has already, has already happened. As you said, the, uh, the exits have been closed in this song. Uh, but the thing is, and it, it's it's almost like it's almost like this dark age, right? But in the song, this character goes out to his uncle's farm. You know, his uncle maintains this uh, Ferrari Barchetta, and you know he he keeps it he keeps it maintained, and he's teaching his nephew, um, you know, how to use the car and 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 how to drive it and and what to do and and all this other stuff. And so, really, you, you kind of see this this tradition. You know this uh, this going out and this this passing of the torch from this uncle to his nephew, and the tradition that he's being passed down is 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 freedom is that freedom that comes with that car uh, that comes with taking out that space and it's and it's you know in America 
freedom very much is a tradition, right? You know, not, not just in America. Before America, this was the case in medieval Europe and in other places. Like freedom was a tradition, right? It was something that had to be maintained, passed from fathers to sons to ensure that they understood what freedom was, what came with it, and, uh, you know, what its rights and responsibilities were. You know, it, it, it's not, you know, it's not something that you can kind of just dismiss offhand lightly as, you know, oh, it's a product of democracy and we're not in favor of democracy here in, on the dissident, right? We don't like democracy. And that means we also don't like freedom. And, you know, I, I don't see a lot of people saying that not even, you know, not even BAP says that BAP, um, uh, BAP is very much pro-freedom. Um, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of certain elements like, you know, the Adrian Vermula integralists and other such people, right. You know, they kind of, they kind of have problems with this idea of, Occidental freedom of of being able to have agency, right? They want to make sure that no one has agency, not even the despot, right? Um, because all of the despot's agency is to ensure that no one else has agency. So really, it's just a system that takes everything away from everyone. Um, and you you could say that that entrusting of uh, responsibility and teaching what that is is just the exemplification of Western filial piety. Exactly. And, you know, it is, it is something that, you know, to, to me, the ultimate traditionalist position to take is just kind of like, well, I, I don't want to sound like Sargon, but the ancient freedoms of our fathers, right? You know, I don't want to, you know, evoke this idea of the Aryan Koryos on the step, but it's like, that's, that's what I think the oldest precedent that Western man can kind of draw his love of freedom, his love of agency from is this is, you know, is this just idea of, you know, endless space of moving across the step in their chariots, which were, you know, their versions of the red barchetta. Right. And I think, I think this song is uh the song is very much, it's one of Russia's best moments, I think, in terms of like uh, portraying what this is and portraying this freedom and that freedom is, is, you know, paradoxically achieved by staying within the tradition of such, because, you know, there's not a lot that, uh, there's not a lot of ways that freedom can be manifested. As a matter of fact, freedom is only something that can exist in very limited conditions. Um, if you have this sort of overwhelming modern state and, you know, and I, I really don't think freedom is, you know, there were certain people who argue freedom is the, like, I think, um, I think it was Rousseau that argued freedom is the default state of mankind. I don't agree. I think freedom is the ultimate uh, apotheosis of mankind's development. Um, but otherwise, we're, you know, the uh, the Hobbesian state of nature almost, um, or within the, uh, the earth mother cults that despise freedom. And really, this is actually, you know, if, unless, you, unless you have something else to say before we move on, this is actually a, a good way to kind of transition into our next song on the list, Subdivisions, which is kind of the opposite of Red well, Barchetta. I mean, Red Barchetta talks about rebelling against the Longhouse. Subdivisions is like the perfect example of just like the confines of the Longhouse yeah. in Serbia. So yeah, perfect way to contrast the two. Ex exactly. You know, Subdivisions is the um, uh, is the opening song off their Signals album. Um, great album, tons of great, you know, great every song's a on. banger in that album. That's <laughs> more or less. Uh, you like the weapon, I don't like the weapon very much. Um, but subdivisions is, you know, about it is about exactly what it's what the song title is. It's about this idea of 
your planned community, your sort of suburb, right? Um, that not only was in the United States, but was in Canada and was all across the Western world, this kind of anti, you know, it's not, it's anti like living, like you can't call it an urban community, but you can't call it a rural community either. It's, it's, it's really just like, it's, it's there as a consequence of civilization running out of space to put people in places. And so it has to turn places into like this artificial, uh, soulless, endless block of houses for miles and miles on end. You know, I grew up in Northern Virginia. This song really resonated with me because in Northern Virginia, for any of the listeners who have been in Northern Virginia, it's really just endless suburbs. It is, it is miles upon miles upon miles of Toll Brothers and Ryan houses. And they're all, you know, sometimes people call them McMansions, but they're all just these copy-pasted, like, you know, two, three-story houses, these townhomes, all of this. And it's, it really is, it's, it's soulless and it's soul-crushing because it's, it's just that and it's shopping centers and, like, all of these woods that I grew up around as a kid that I enjoyed playing in, all of them got chopped down to make new subdivisions, to make new, uh, you know, bypasses and roads. And, you know, this was happening all the way back in Russia's day when they made um, uh, when they made this song. This is happening probably as early as, you know, the end of World War II, if not during. Is like this is kind of like the initial, the first version of uh, live in the pot and eat the bugs, you know. And, you know, the, the chorus of the song, or at least the uh, uh, a part of the chorus, but it's a... Uh, any escape might help to smooth the unattractive truth, but the suburbs have no charms to soothe the restless dreams of youth. And this kind of, you know, as you said, this like, this exemplifies like, you know, you've got young men, uh, not just young men, but young people in general who have a ton of fucking energy who want to go and express that energy in ways that, you know, they want to, and they can't cause they live in this super ordered world that places upon them idiotic restraints to their, you know, to their free will, to their means of expression, um, but also restraints to their, you know, history and their past and their tradition. Like, you know, if you grow up in a suburb, you don't even know where the fuck you come from. You just kind of live there in that pod. You know, you know, you come from a nice house, but you don't have any connection to the soil. It's not, li- it's not like living in a small town, right? Or even in a city. Yeah, suburbia oh. is the ultimate form, I think, of just deracination. I mean, even when you talk to people that grew up in suburbs, right, they say like, oh, I'm from here, but it's really just a suburb of XYZ city. You know, there's no real connection to other than, oh, what's the closest large town or city to you? Um, or better yet, like, oh, where are you from? Like, oh, I'm from this suburb, which is like outside of Detroit, because we know that oh, like where you're from is a product of white flight. You know, like this is the constraint that's been put upon you because of, you know, all of the reasons that that's been, you know, the cause of. Exactly. And, you know, you know, going further on to the song, you, um, uh, you, you hear some will sell their dreams for small desires, um, which is, you know, and, uh, and, and further on, they say, um, uh, you know, they lose the race to rats. They get caught up in this kind of, you know, what we call the cog of the machine of, um, uh, of living in this, in this system, in this global homo make work system in which no one is actually doing work, but everyone is being miserable. 
Um, everyone is going in and working their same nine to five office job in which they just fill out a spreadsheet and they go to stupid OSHA training and shit all day. Um, and, and that's their whole, that's their whole job. And, um, um, and then in the second half, they say, and start to dream of somewhere to relax their restless flight somewhere out of a memory of lighted streets on quiet nights. And so, you know, when you, when you go and you get caught up in the system and you get trapped there, you start dreaming of like, oh, well, what was the world outside of here? You know, when I was a teenager, when I was young, uh, when I was different, like this was, this was different. This, I didn't have to deal with this bullshit. This was a lot better of a place. This wasn't like, this wasn't a, um, uh, this wasn't a world in which I had to go in and listen to, you know, diversity seminar training for four or five hours a day. It's like, you know, I actually had dreams and ambitions and genuine expression of such. And, you know, in order to kind of make myself fit into this uh, system of subdivisions, you know, uh, where opinions are all provided, the future predecided, and you're detached and subdivided, right? Um, this is in order to make yourself fit into that, you, you kind of sell everything that was you and you turn yourself really into like this bug man, this, this, this soy boy, this consumer. Right. And this is kind of the world I think Neil Parrott was writing about. Well, yeah. And I mean, he mentions that earlier, like drawn like moths, we drift into the city, the timeless old attraction cruising for the action. I mean, it's so often, and I think you see this more out of suburbia than you do the, the quote unquote small town, especially because the suburbs have been the more dominant way of living uh, over sort of like rural podunk, small, you know, 10,000 or less town where, you know, in the suburbs, we get drawn to the big city. That's, that's definitely become, I think in a lot of ways, the uh, invention of Hollywood come talkies is that just, you want to, move out into the big city you want to be a star you know like new york's got broadway uh hollywood of course has hollywood but i mean even now uh we sell those dreams for small desires it's like oh i'll just go move to silicon valley i'll join a crypto startup i'll make my like a million dollars a year and then i'll just get out of there but then they realize that oh you got to deal with the traffic you got to deal with you know the housing is like half your income if not more and they say that if you don't make X hundred thousand dollars a year, you're considered lower income. It, it, it's demonstrative of that. Yeah, maybe where you came from, as awful as it was, because, you know, you're in these subdivided, pre-planned, awful cookie cutter homes. They probably offered something a little bit different than just the rat race that you get caught in the trap of, because once you're in it, Odds are you don't break out of it until you're an old man. And by then it's a little too late for you to enjoy those dreams that you once had. And that's what the song I think perfectly encapsulates. 100%. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it, it's perfectly contrasted with the previous song we went to Red Barchetta, very much the spirit of the spirit of rebelling against this uh, terrible civilizational order. Uh, and then, you know, what the civilizational order is. You know, too much rules, too much society, too much, um, too much useless, petty bull bullshit. Like, I, I read this on a Twitter thread recently. It's like your success in modern day society is based off of how willing you are to undergo menial tasks. And this is why women tend to do so much better uh, in not just in college, but in the workforce, um, in office work, at least. Uh at least in terms of coping with it, not in terms of succeeding and getting paid, but in terms of coping and being, 
quote unquote good workers is because women's entire existence is based around menial bullshit, right? Like uh, feminine hygiene is a high maintenance thing and they got to put in some fucking effort before they walk out of the door to make sure everything is prim and proper and they look nice and presentable, right? Um, and so this is why they're, you know, the perfect sort of bureaucrats. So the perfect, you know, cogs in the machine um, because they show zero ambition they're completely pliant to everything and they're willing to endure as much menial bullshit as you can throw at them. And they'll never, they'll complain a lot, but they'll never fucking do anything about it. Oh, and what makes matters worse in that regard is, is that if you get a bunch of them together in the same room, you don't need to worry about the menial bullshit because they'll come up with the menial bullshit where, um, if you've ever been, uh, and God have mercy on you, if you've ever been someone in the audience, the guy that was in like an office space doing something not related, but every other, every other person in that room is a woman, you will get dragged in to the most meaningless bullshit drama that I can, I mean, I've gone through it. It is the worst thing ever. You're forced to like just listen and take it because you got nothing else to fucking do because it's a menial make work fake email job. So you're like, yeah, you might as well just listen. But at the same time, it's just like it is meaningless meandering bullshit that any man could hammer out in a five minute conversation and just be like, hey, man, are we good? Like, is everything fine on this issue? And then it's like, you know, you, you, you fix your shit and you work it out. And, but no, you have nothing else to do. And, these, and again, it's that reduction of, of the menial stuff. And they all dream about going on vacations or going out there looking for somebody or going on a date or whatever. But it's not anything of meaning. And uh, I think that that song just I think every song that we've covered, right, because we are covering Americana. I mean, between radio, our identity, rebelling and now the constraints just sort of perfectly encapsulates what is the new world man. More or less. Yeah, that's that's a good transition. I saw what you did there. Um, yeah, that's a transition off of to the, the next song we we're going to do on this list, which is called New World Man. It's also it's off the same album of subdivisions. Uh, it's off of Signals. Um, actually, you know, the New World Signals podcast is 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 really named after a compilation of this song and the and the Signals album. Um, but um, New World Man is. Rush's kind of description of what the soul of America is in a song. Like, you know, this is, I think this is the one song on our list that we can kind of like read all of the lyrics more or less in order, in order to like, in order to portray this. It's, he's a rebel and a runner. He's a signal turning green. He's a restless young romantic wants to run the big machine. He's got a problem with his poisons, but you'll know he'll find a cure. He's cleaning up his systems to keep his nature pure. Uh, he's got to make his own mistakes and learn to mend the mess he makes. He's old enough to know what's right, but young enough not to choose it. He's noble enough to win the world, but weak enough to lose it. Right. And this is, this is the, the new world man, right? You know, this is what it's just this description. I think just in this, in this song, um, it is this, this, this just, it is this continual description of what the soul of America is, right? You know, it is a, a, a young man coming into adulthood, you know, a young man with the energy of youth and some of the immaturity of youth, but some of the uh, wisdom of being, being an older man of coming into his, uh, his adulthood. Right. And, you know, like, I'm a, like young impetuous heroes in certain, 
you know, epics. Like for example, the Nibelungen League comes to mind. That's my that's my favorite epic, right? Siegfried is this young and impetuous, uh, this young and impetuous hero, really only concerned about his own personal gain. But he has noble qualities, and he's very much a uh, a he is very much a kind of uh, a man coming into adulthood. And this is what you know the American spirit is. You know, America, America isn't even three hundred years old. Like, like, you know, people talk about, you know, the senile empire, you know, the, the John Glubb theory of, uh, of, of cycles being about 250 years. I would argue the American empire did not begin until 1945. Um, not in earnest, like, okay, wow. We had overseas territories. Wow. We had the Philippines. We had, uh, his Imperial Highness Douglas MacArthur in charge of the Philippines for a couple of decades. Wow. But no, I, I I would very much argue, you know, what we call the gay, the global American empire did not begin until 1945. So even if Glub's thesis is correct, um, it won't come to an end until about 2200 because that's the starting date we're working with. And the reason I, I, I took the time to kind of make that point is because America is a, it is the new world man. It is young. It is a, it is very much, it's, it's in, you know, the civil war was, the Civil War was like the first major test this country has gone through, but really we're not blooded at all. Like, this is a point Francis Parker Yaki makes an Imperium, but um, uh, America never really had to pay in blood for anything it ever got. It kind of got everything almost by pure happenstance. Like, a fact that's lost on a lot of people is that the Louisiana Purchase was the largest single territorial acquisition of any any power in world history um and you know it, it was done for the price of a few ships out of the line like like that doesn't happen right that that just doesn't happen in in anywhere in the entirety of world history and you combine this with the calvinist spirit of america because america is a fucking calvinist country like it or fucking not America is a deist slat when deism comes out of pro of specifically Calvinist Protestantism. America is a Calvinist country because damn near everyone believes in some sort of predestination, right? In America, because of all this good fortune that comes its way, you know, fighting a, a not even fighting a war in the Mexican-American war and acquiring the entire Southwest, it's like we believe we were destined for greatness, right? And this is the kind of beliefs that a young man would have, you know, I mean <laughs> – I don't know about you, Prude, but I'm a, anyone who hangs around me long enough uh, uh, finds out that I'm a very ambitious, I'm an ambitious young man with a lot of uh, with a lot of hope for the future, and I think that's exemplary of the uh, of the American spirit of what expectations for the future are, of of what the world is, and what what um uh, what almost what your birthright is, I guess. You know, I think that the perfect person that kind of describes that is george bancroft you know he wrote 10 volumes of the history of the united states from the discovery of the american co uh, continent until now uh, of his time and i mean you want to talk about a, a viewpoint of what america is and i think to some extent most people on our side would still hold on to as americans is that you talk about a people more destined for greatness than the united states that has by valiantly holding off itself against one of the greatest empires of the world, 
I mean, not to sound like two Murray Rothbards, you know, burst in liberty, but I mean, like, you hold on to these higher ideals of morals and men, which they adamantly will tell you. Every document from the founders will tell you this will not last unless you hold to these beliefs. And by virtue of those beliefs, you explore the West, you conquer the West, and you arise as uh, what Alfred Mayer May uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan would say is this uh, the real island of the world, um, and and you manage to to hold your own that way. Uh, and I think that even though this is written in 1982, and it's sort of this like almost yuppie style song era of the 1980s of the time. I mean, there's such flagrant optimism about about the United States at this time. I mean, whether it's the opening lyrics, but I mean, it, it, it tells you that this is a man trying to pave his own way, that America is a uniquely different country from its European forebears and uh, its forerunners. Like, yeah, you're learning to match the beat of the old world man and some of the ways of, of governance or, the you know, learning from their mistakes but you're also trying to pave a way differently from the third world. You're catching the heat of it because you're now an international player. You're now kind of recognizing it. And I mean, all again, all this, you know, the third world itself, right, is, is Cold War language to, to give it up its time. But, um, you know, we're, we're at that time now where these lyrics mean a lot more to me uh, than it does maybe at the time it was written, you know, um, He's uh, old enough to know what's right, but young enough not to choose it. And for us, the right on the right, especially for Americans, you look at the the path that we've been on really since I would say FDR onwards. Um, did did we you know did we make the right choice? Uh, you know you you want to and I think the distributist has been having this fun conversation with centrists lately, especially with Adam and Sitch. Where like the best easy way to like take down the centrist worldview is just ask themselves the question. Um, you know, are, are we in a state of progress or are we in a state of something far worse? And clearly, you know, we're not there, but what makes America great. And this is where I do agree with Yaki is that we haven't paid blood really in anything. Yes, this is not to discount the blood that has been paid in all of the wars that America has been in. But unlike the medieval periods and the kingdoms of old, no time except for the civil war have we really raised american blood against american blood um and we've been very lucky by providence in many ways by that uh and in in that way we're still incredibly young um you know we are that young boy bearing arms but unfortunately we we also have a problem with power um in this instance i think ceding that power to other people but you know, we're uh, we're still capable of winning the world and we're still capable of doing a lot of things. Um, myself, you and Charlemagne have all talked about that if there's going to be this renaissance, um, it's going to be distinctly American. And I mean, uh, that's who we are, uh, especially in, in these circles. We are that restless young romantic that wants to run the big machine. And even to this day, I'm a restless romantic for what is this country, because having the opportunity to travel around it, see great civil works of engineering, to see the construction, to see Yellowstone, to see the oceans on both sides of the coasts. Holy fuck. There's nothing like it. Mm -hmm. And you, and it's funny out of all the songs we've talked about, I, I said this on my last video, but there's that old American, there's that old adage I heard growing up as a kid. Cause I did grow up overseas in Europe. And I mean, 
this isn't to discount the beauty that is of the old continent because by God, there's a lot of it. Um, but there's that old adage that to an American, a 100 years seems like forever or seems like a long time, but to a European, a hundred miles seems like it's endless. And I mean, for you and I, we can make 10, 12 hour road trips and be like, all right, man, like, let me just like take a nap and we'll hit another 10 hours on the road and not think anything of it. I mean, hell, my buddy Oros and I, we drove 10 hours and even more for him because of our, our locations to drive to the event in the U.S. And we didn't think anything of it. We napped for like maybe two hours and we just gunned it all the way there. And that's what makes it so unique about this place. This is that the sheer scope and scale of this place is not comparable to the old world. And with that, I really do think that despite the situation we're in now, um, we certainly have that optimism with us that we can reclaim it, learn from our past mistakes and, uh, and match the beat of those that wish to challenge us. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, you know, this has kind of been the point that I've been making and others have been making for a long time is it's like, you know, if the West is to be saved, it will be saved in America. And if America is to be saved, it will be saved by what we do. Right. And, and, you know, this is, this is partly why we're doing this podcast right now. It's partly why I've tried to gear this podcast around Americana and the American spirit to kind of just constantly remind people what this is and what we are and what the precedence for it is. You know, as you say, you know, the first time America paid blood for anything was the civil war. And this is why, this is why I think the South, you know, I pretend to be a man of the South very often, but, um, uh, but the South is very much older than the rest of the country. Not chron not just chronologically. I don't mean this in the sense that like, you know, even though the South was founded in 1607, in uh, Jamestown, as opposed to I think 1614, when um, uh, Plymouth was founded, I could have the date wrong. Uh, it was either 1614 or 1621. Um, but that's not what I mean when I mean uh, the South is older. The South is older because you know more war has been fought in the South, um, more battles, more blood has been shed in the South than any any other part of the country. Not just in terms of you know when the white man got here, but you know. Kentucky literally comes from the, uh, from, I don't know what tribe it is, but it's a, a native word that means blood stained earth. And, you know, the tribes of the Mississippi, you know, the Chickasaw and the Choctaw were noted for being very, very warlike with each other. So, you know, the South is very much this, this place that's older than the rest of the country, just because of, just because of how much war has been fought there, how much blood has been shed there, how much, uh, you know, blood, how much people and treasure it's put forth, you know? And I mean, as you said, like America, America as a whole, uh, it's not, it's not just the Southern culture. Like some people would claim, um, it's not the Northern culture either, but it's, it's something, it's something bigger. It's something, you know, kind of beyond, these various regionalities, you know, and it's, it's not so much a melding, um, as much as it is like this, I think this higher kind of concept exemplified by, you know, ironically, the best representation I've seen of what the American spirit is, is Columbia and Bioshock Infinite. You know, it's, it is, it is legitimately like it's Washington wearing a freaking Roman toga, right? You know, with a, um, uh, with a scroll in his hands. It's, it's this, it's, it's the Rome of the West, 
It is the Rome of the West. That is what America is. And that's, I think, the, the best way that I can kind of describe this spirit of, of what the new world man is, is, is the Roman of uh, Faustian civilization. Well, and on that note, uh, oh, Prude, I, I wanted to, you have any final comments, any final thoughts on, on Rush? Well, we, we didn't get through every song we wanted to go through. No, but no, I but I, you, you made uh, so many good points that I just wanted to like touch on it. Cause it's very, it's very good. It was very touching, very fitting. Uh, it, you and I of course come from different sort of religious traditions. Um, but like you, you, you talk about new Rome and I just think about sort of, uh, sort of what's been labeled as sort of like new Israelism in, in Christianity. Right. Like, um, you know, France is like the Fie de l'Anglise, like the first daughter of the church. Uh, Spain had the Rex Catholicismus, the most Catholic King and America in its own Calvinistic and Protestant traditions, whether high church Protestant or low church, you know, everyone had this concept that America would be that shining city on the hill as Aquinas talked about. And I mean, even today, there's still references to Aquinas when we talk about Washington, D.C., about being that city on a hill. Um, and I think that you can't escape that where there's this sense of being this chosen people. I mean, George Bancroft talked about it. I mean, even to this day, that kind of culture, uh, you know, what we call manifest destiny gets still put in place by people with the American American right-ish, you know, tendencies, whether it's boomer cons or people more dissident like us. And I just, it's something that you can't escape if you grow up in this country. And, um, you know, you don't see it elsewhere. You don't see a sense of just unending national pride or a sense of belonging of what is home outside of a few places in Europe. Um, and I know this will be a little spicy, but I mean, like, I think the Irish especially kind of get it. Um, because it's just like who's paid for some things in blood would be someone with a longstanding, uh, you know, aspect of either a conceived form of occupation or a conceived form of they've been treated badly or perceived as bad elsewhere. And it's just like, I, I relate to that a lot because it's just like you come here now and you you do see when you intermingle with, say, right-winger dissident spaces between Americans and Europeans, there is sort of that like, ah, fuck you, you American. I don't need to listen to what you have to say. Um, which I always just, I, I kind of understand where they're coming from. Again, privilege of empire, right? Because we do know that we're a cultural exporter. There is the global American empire, the big gay. But at the same time, it's like you have no idea what it's like for, you know, the people like us that just know that things are going to shit from the inside and that we're sort of the target, that Schmidtian enemy that gets talked about. And it's just like, but you don't understand like what they call American values, what they call to be America is the anathema, the antithesis of what we were raised to believe in, what we were raised to understand and know. And like, that's something I clash with every day, man. Like... I grew up in like an army brat. I grew up, uh, you know, I, I as a kid on the news watching my dad's workplace, the Pentagon get on fire from 9-11. Like I grew up with a vastly different interpretation of what the American state is. And to this day, I still struggle with it. I think my dad does too, to some extent, being a former soldier and especially a career soldier. But it's just like I, my view of this country is going to be radically different from some piece of shit socialite in New York City that is totally on board with the narrative and this song to me along with all the other ones that we talked about is that outsider looking in because you know there are people that tell you to live like an expat within your own country and i think that that's impossible 
because this is my country. This is my home. I can't purchase a plane ticket and escape. This is, this is home to me. It's in the same way that I have this conversation with conscious Caracol a lot about immigration. And he's just like, a lot of people tell me, you know, like, get the fuck out of there, leave, leave. And he tells them the same time over and over again, you don't leave home, you defend it. And uh, to me, like all these songs that we've covered, and I'm sure we can have another conversation about it, not Mm -hmm. too much now, but this is home, you know, whatever this higher ideal is, higher calling of the country, whether it's supposed to be the new Rome, whether supposed to be the new aspect of the great church or how the, the Russians called themselves the third Rome to help establish continuity with Christianity. By God, I think it's going to be here. I agree. I, I very much agree. And, you know, this is kind of what my whole brand is based around is just like, you know, kind of trying to bring into this, into being this consciousness of, of you know, the real third Rome. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess those are kind of my final comments too. Um, Prude, I want to thank you very much for coming on and I'm sure we'll have another conversation like this in the future, either about rush or about something else. Um, you're always welcome at my, uh, orange County estate, as I like to tell everyone. Um, and, uh, I would, I would like to give you a chance to shill anything that you have, uh, coming up. Well, as for those of you who do not know who I am, I cover a variety of things ranging from uh, fishing, culture, politics, and international relations every Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Usually is when I stream to cover various parts of theory, scholars, and what the hell is going on in the world and how to make sense of it. And uh, this uh, for Sunday, the show I will have most recent for when this goes live uh, is going to be about hydro hegemony and water conflicts and resource conflicts. And I'll have furious pertinax on from apostolic majesty's channel so it'll be a, a really good time and uh paul I, again i want to thank you for having me on i it's a large shoes to fill after you had uh thomas on as your first guest but i hope i did well no you did you did outstanding and i think uh, i think the listeners will very much enjoy this conversation all right well i wish i had a pithy rush lyric to end this on but um because my good friend who I know in real life, who no one in the sphere said he liked my outro last time, I guess I'll, I guess I'll do it again. Uh, thank you everyone for listening to episode two of the new world signals podcast. Um, episode three will come out two weeks from now. Uh, and may you find foreign shores less appealing than your own. Yeah, I'm
Thank you.